The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Judith McGeary. She is the founder and executive director of the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, a national organization with a mission to promote common sense policies for local diversified agricultural systems. After earning her Bachelor's of Science from Stanford University and her law degree with high honors from the University of Texas at Austin, Ms. McGeary clerked for a federal appeals court and went on to private law practice. During that time, she became a passionate advocate of sustainable agriculture, and she and her husband established their own livestock farm. But after seeing how government regulations benefit industrial agriculture at the expense of family farms, she founded the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, again, to promote policies that support local, diversified agricultural systems. You may have seen Judith in the documentary Farmageddon. She has served as the vice chair of the U.S. Secretary's Advisory Committee on Animal Health and is also active with the Texas Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and the Farmer to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Welcome, Judith. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Well, I heard you speak at the Texas Registered Dietitians Alliance in Austin, Texas this spring, and I thought that your work was so important and your message is so vital to the public health community that I wanted you to speak. And, yet, of course, my first question is you've got this great education, you've got a law degree, and what led you from practicing law to being a farmer and getting into the swing of farm and food policy? Well, I was already frustrated with law in terms of it, the practice of law didn't seem to be finding solutions to the real problems, the, the reasons I'd gone into initially doing environmental law. And so I went looking for how I could have an impact, and I went from thinking about the traditional environmental topics, wetlands, endangered species, all these really cool, sexy stuff, to food. It was a professor who just got me reading the really serious stuff about sustainable agriculture, Acres Magazine, Alan Savory's work in holistic management, and it's totally corny, but it was really sort of this life-changing moment. Yeah. Because I looked and I said, I realized when I got into this that it didn't have to be a zero-sum game, that we could improve human health, we could improve the environment, we could treat animals humanely, we could help local economies and small business and, and do all these things at the same time with this wonderful system of small-scale sustainable agriculture. So did you grow up on a farm? No, I grew up in North Dallas, the daughter of two university professors. And so what's it like for you to be farming? Um, it's both the hardest and the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. I, I love it. It is satisfying down to the depths of my soul. Mm. It's also the longest hours, the worst pay, and often the most heartbreaking. There's a joke among farmers that you have to be an insane optimist to do this <laughs> because 
because there's so many things that go so terribly wrong. And all you can be is like, next year will be better. Yeah. Well, I really appreciated the information that you brought to dietitians because typically what happens, and this is so insane, but we learn about food and health, but what's missing is how we produce our food. And increasingly, industrial food system promoters, the whole agribusiness leaders and their savvy PR firms, target us with messages about how we have to have this industrial system and that this is how we're going to feed the world. And then I hear people like you say, wait a second, this industrial model is killing us. It's harming our natural resources. We need to change policies to protect the family farm. And that's why I thought the work that you do is so important for us to understand. Now, I know that you said that you had received a certificate in being a soil and food web advisor, and you brought to your audience in Austin the soil food web. Can you start with that? Can you tell us what that's all about? You know, one of the things that I studied with Dr. Lane Income, and one of the things she does that I'd like to try to do even over the radio okay. is ask people to take 10 seconds, very short, and close their eyes and imagine their favorite plant. Just five seconds. And when people open their eyes, and you go, so what did you picture? And people, violets, oak trees, all of this. Did you think, was the image in your mind just of the soil up? Did it ever occur to you? Did, did you picture your plant with the roots? And no one does, unless you're a really weird soul geek. Right. Everyone thinks of the plants above ground, and no one thinks about the roots. And we talk about dirt, and we think of dirt as an inert substance. And when it's healthy, which is something many of us weren't familiar with healthy soil. Many people have never smelt or touched or dug in healthy soil. But when it's healthy, it is vibrantly alive. And it truly is the source of all nutrition and all health of every single plant on this planet. And so the food web is a term used to think about the complexity of all the different creatures living in the soil and how they interact. Mm-hmm. And the interdependence. Yes. You can't say, I want X species or X type of microbe and be successful. There literally are millions of species and trillions of actual microbes in healthy soil. And it's so complex. Yeah. Tell me what's been happening to our soil. You know, we hear about the reduced nutrient composition of our foods. We hear about increased erosion, decreased soil quality. What can we do to protect this vital natural resource? So the first thing is to stop poisoning the microbes. Mm -hmm. Stop putting toxins down on the ground. Stop putting things like chemical fertilizers, which also burn away those microbes. It, It poisons them too, even though technically it's not a toxin. Mm-hmm. and start feeding these microbes the same way we try to feed our pets, you know, with different foods. But it's the same idea. If you want a living creature to thrive, you don't pour something on it that's going to hurt it, and you give it some food to nourish it. And there's compost teas, and there's molasses, and all of these things. And people can find this if they reach out to holistic or natural gardener-type places. But that's the fundamental idea. Mm-hmm. 
What about water? Of course, soil helps us filter water. I should mention that water is our most critical nutrient. So this is all connected. And I'm concerned about water quality just as we are concerned about soil quality. And I know that because your farm is an hour and a half away from Austin, Texas, and I just saw the new climate predictions that your part of the country is going to be experiencing more heat, more drought. What is this telling us about how we have to live in these spaces? So, you know, the phrase water is life. Yeah. It's that fundamental. And what happens when you do agriculture the way we've done it is you kill off the microbes in the soil. The soil becomes compacted, very hard. It doesn't absorb water well. And so when you get a heavy rain, you have immense amounts of erosion and the water runs off. The plants need more water. You're having to apply water more often. And it ends up being the very wasteful occupation. Whereas if you have sustainable, healthy soil, it's porous. It's like a sponge. And I've seen this. You know, when we started using compost tea on a hay field that we used to have on top of a hill, and it used to be that when the rain came down, it would just sheet down off that hill. You know, it was just, you know, water falling off of it. And we started doing this compost tea and started feeding the microbes. And the next heavy rain we got, there was barely a trickle of water coming off that hill. It literally had turned into a sponge. So that's what we have to have because that way we preserve our topsoil and we reduce the need to water crops, not necessarily get rid of it. You may need additional water besides what the rainfall, but you certainly reduce that need. And you increase things like aquifer recharge and the capture of water in a way that keeps it in a cycle that can be used for both plant, animal, and human use. Mm-hmm. You told a really great story about how you were able to monitor or see just a simple thing like a running toilet would drop the amount of water that you had for your household. And you were using a water catchment. You use all rainwater, which blew me away because I thought, you're in Austin or near Austin, Texas, and you're using (laughs) rainwater? Like, how much rain do you get in Austin? So, yes, it's a challenge to live on rainwater in in Texas, but we can do it. And that's household use. So that's something, whether people are farming or not, you can do in your house. We have a 20,000-gallon tank. It's supposed to be for, let's say, a normal household use, but a normal water-conscious household use. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to last six months. We went, we actually moved here and, it rained enough to fill up the tank just before the worst drought in decades. And we survived 14 months with only an additional five inches of rain coming down. Because we were, we were watching the little red bob on a string shows us where the water level is. And every morning I look out the window of the bathroom and I can see the little red bobber and see where's our water. And it makes you realize how much water we waste and how incredibly casual we are in this country. So, again, sort of a a water-conscious household in this country will often use something like 100 gallons per person per day. We were down to 35 gallons per person per day. Mm -hmm. And that included not just drinking, but washing dishes, clothes, watering a few plants, you know, our kitty cats. You know, we were using a fraction 
of what most Americans use. And we still had a first world quality of life. Mm. So have you figured out a way to use gray water effectively then in the house, like to flush toilets and such? We actually did not plumb for gray water because the amount of the expense of plumbing for it didn't seem to make sense compared to buying just super high efficiency to begin with. Mm-hmm. So everything we have is very high efficiency. And then, you know, your listeners in California will be familiar with things like, you know, if it's yellow, let it settle. Right. There are lots of things you can do to reduce water. I think gray water is wonderful. It just didn't, the numbers didn't crunch out for us in a way that made sense. Yeah. So tell me about farming in Texas. Being that you're based in that state, and Texas is huge, but it is dry. And what kinds of crops, I know there's cotton, a lot of genetically engineered cotton, as a matter of fact. I know you've got livestock there. I know there are people who are trying to do grape and wine industry production, Where do you see Texas livestock and agriculture headed? I think we're somewhat of a microcosm, or not such a microcosm, of the larger ag picture in this country. There is an incredibly vast industry ag system here. We have some of the largest feedlots in the entire country in this state, and you can literally smell them from miles away over those parts of Texas. We have a ton of conventional row crops, you know, acres after acres of GMO corn. You know, that's what I see when I drive from my farm to Austin, actually. It's just field after field of GMO corn. And so that's there. And at the same time, there's this incredible interest and resurgence of small farms, people doing holistic management. We've got a wonderful holistic management base here of people raising livestock in ways that are healthy for the soil. We've got wonderful organic vegetable farmers and CSAs. It's not as vibrant as it is in other parts of the country. It's a harder climb here because the industry ag is so powerful and it's so pervasive and it affects not, you know, the laws, the regulations, the ads that air on the radio shows, the, mm-hmm. the coverage in the newspapers. I mean, it's so pervasive. But even so, there's still this grassroots desire for healthy, sustainably raised food. And I'm seeing that growing. And I think what is true again nationally as well as in Texas is we're heading for a make or break time where the industry ag is affirmatively at this point trying to squash the sustainable ag movement. And you and I just talked about a bill this morning that I found that was filed that would remove local control and prevent us from being able to have GMO-free zones or even zones where you couldn't plant bee-killing, you know, seeds that had been treated with bee-killing pesticides. And so we're coming up for pretty much an open war. And the question is, is this grassroots passion, is this desire for sustainable food strong enough to win? Mm-hmm. Well, let me take one moment and remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Judith McGeary. She is the executive director of a wonderful national organization based in Texas called the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. She's also an attorney and an activist and a sustainable farmer. Well, we should jump into policy here because we have the luxury of having an attorney. You've got that skill set as well as the sustainable farming insight. 
What kinds of policies and how do we mobilize citizens to get behind the policies that can save us? I think it's the same as almost any question of how do you make change, and that is people getting engaged and staying engaged in a meaningful way. And I'm going to beat up right now on, on some nonprofits, not by name, but just the whole nonprofit world that encourage online petitions and, you know, sign here and then don't think about it again. Yes. Because legislators don't care about that. Now, if you get two million signatures, okay, yes, they're going to pay attention even to an online petition once it reaches a certain size. But if the question is, what can I, as an individual human being, really do to make a difference? It's not sign an online petition. Because what the politicians care about, what the legislators care about is, how much do you care about this? So it's about really engaging. That doesn't mean giving up your day job and becoming crazy activists like me. You don't have to go to that extreme. All you have to do is take a few minutes to pick up the phone and call that legislator. Or if you really hate phone calls, a personalized email, something that's clearly your word, and keep it up. Do that call or do that email and follow up again in a couple of weeks or a month. Follow up again. Keep that relationship so that they know you're watching, they know you're engaged, they know you're going to remember it when you go to the ballot booth and you're going to talk about it with your friends. And even a relatively small number of people who engage that way can have an amazing impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think too often we feel that our voices don't matter. So I think your instructions to us are very important as a reminder that, yes, indeed, it is important to pick up the call. And I share your disdain for these kinds of just sign here and push or maybe even add it to your Facebook site. That's not the way to get change accomplished. We have to engage. And very early in my activism career, I got to hear Richard Harwood speak, and he, he runs an institute on civic engagement. And he said that both the nonprofits and the politicians had really betrayed the trust of the American people. Because as communities, we kept promising easy fixes. We kept saying, if we just stop this law, if we just pass this bill, if we just get so-and-so elected or so-and-so defeated, everything's going to be okay. You know, we change it. And the real truth is, it took us decades to get to where we are. And it's going to take a lot of hard work to turn it around. And I'd rather tell people that so that they understand what it's going to take and hopefully commit to that. But they're willing to do their part. They don't have to do all of it just a little part of it, but that they recognize the sort of time over the long term and that it's worth it rather than sort of do a little bit and then get discouraged because you didn't see the results you were promised. Right. We're such an instant gratification culture, and it's important for us to keep that in mind, that changes take time. Rosa Parks didn't just decide to sit down on that bus. Right. All right. I want to go back to your farm now. And I want you to tell us what your biggest challenges are in getting good food to the table. You know, I would recommend to my clients that they buy food directly from their farmer, that they visit the farm, that they know the farmer. And this direct relationship is so important. Get rid of the middleman when you can so that we can support the farmer directly and have good quality food. Tell me what your biggest challenges are that we can work on together to make it work for you and other family farmers. So the answer you'll get from pretty much any Texas farmer, because we're a smart aleck group, 
will be, it's the weather and the government. <laughs> and I know your listeners can't do anything about the weather. And they don't mean to come off as anti-government either. I think there are great government solutions. In pretty much every arena of farming, we keep running into problems where the rules were made by the, by and for the big guys. In the case of a livestock farm, which is you know what we are, we do grass-fed lamb and grass-fed beef, one of the biggest issues is the regulations on slaughterhouses. Because our small, little, local slaughterhouses that work with farmers like us have to deal with just an amazing amount of paperwork. I mean, stuff that doesn't improve food safety. It just, if you aren't big enough to have dedicated administrative staff just to handle all of your paperwork and, you know, a nice legal team to hand, you know, deal with everything, it's difficult and it adds a lot of cost. It's also kept very few, there are very few slaughterhouses as a result of these regulations. So we end up probably about, I think I calculated at one point somewhere between a quarter and a third of what we charge for our beef is entirely the processing cost. Mm. And that's an amazing challenge. We have a tiny profit margin. We could easily both cut our prices and make a better profit if there was better access and an easier situation with the slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's national because we see that here in the Midwest, where I am as well, where a farmer that I know basically stopped farming because he could not do the drive. People didn't want to pay the price of the meat. We hear this constantly that there aren't enough independent meat processors. So are there mobile processing units? How are you, how do you advocate for changing the system so that people like you can indeed get your meat processed in a reasonable way? So in Texas, people have tried to set up mobile processing units and haven't been able to work with the re- the regulatory agencies have not approved any of them. There's one unit that does like wildlife, you know, deer and elk. There's no unit for domestic livestock. And that is, again, directly related to the regulations and the way they're interpreted. This one really needs reform at the congressional level. Slaughterhouse regulations are set by the feds. And this absolutely, ha- so this has to be a federal regulatory change. And there are some good proposals. Um, there's a bill that was introduced last year, I think will be reintroduced this year, called the Prime Act, which would allow sales from custom slaughterhouses, which are less regulated, but right now you can't sell the meat. And there's a proposal from a great group called Local Foods Association on just how to reform the regulations without even passing legislation. So, you know, things like that and getting reforms like that into the Farm Bill, for instance, next year's Farm Bill year, Great time to do reform. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I'd encourage anyone who's interested in humanely raised, locally raised, grass-fed meat, push for there to be reforms to the slaughterhouse regulations and laws, you know, in this next farm bill. Absolutely. All right. I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to use this platform as time to bring up the issues that you think are most pressing I think the slaughterhouse issue is huge, and I agree that we've got to become vocal with regard to the new farm bill. What else is on your plate right now? I think at the federal level, the two biggest things are the slaughterhouse regs. I mean, that's huge. And on the flip side, for both the produce industry and also for this growing movement of food hubs, right now, this is the time that the new food safety regulations are coming into place. It's been a six-year saga for people who may have followed it may have heard of the Food Safety Modernization Act. Right. And there was huge fights over the statute and there's huge fights over the regs, but now the regs are in place and the deadlines for compliance are coming up. And even though we were incredibly fortunate, not, and not fortunate because it wasn't luck, I mean, it was 
huge amounts of hard work from people all over the country, got some small-scale exemptions. The sort of small to mid-sized folks, the folks that are supplying, trying to scale up just enough to really supply a community instead of just a handful of families, are going to get hit hard by this. They are going to get, it's a maze, terrifying maze of rags. I think we need reform of that in the Farm Bill as well. So this next year and a half as we work on the Farm Bill, whether it's meat, whether it's produce, whether it's you know value-added or sort of the food hub and the community aspect, all three of those areas, there's hopefully some real, you know, we're looking at openings for reform in this Farm Bill, and we're going to need all the support we can get from all over the country. Mm-hmm. Well, and your website, again, it's farmandranchfreedom.org, is a great repository for information from the legal side as well as the grower's side in terms of what does equal the kinds of foods that I'm recommending. How can we get those to the table? But I also want to talk a little bit about genetically modified organisms or GMOs. You know, so many states have fought to label these foods. We're in this terrible situation where we've lost country of origin labeling on our meats. We don't have genetically modified organism or GMO labels on foods that have come from that system. And I don't know where to go from here in terms of helping farmers prevent contamination from both the herbicide drift that goes with those crops as well as the genetic drift that contaminates them. So this is the single most depressing topic in my life, I think. And I say that because it's hard and we've lost labeling. You know, that that's a lost battle right now. We may change in the future. We can always turn and repeal laws that have been passed. Mm-hmm. And the question is, I think you've identified exactly, is even if we can't label from the consumer side, what can we do for our farmers? And I'm very worried. The bill I mentioned earlier briefly here in Texas just got filed. We're going to be fighting about it for the next couple of months. would prevent any local regulation of seed. And it arguably, and I'm you know, trying to figure out this language, but it looks like it would even prevent any local regulation of anything involved in the cultivation of those seeds, which for things like GMOs that have been designed to be resistant to certain herbicides would mean that these folks, can, the farmers can just keep spraying the herbicides even if they're harming their neighbors, even if they're harming the community by getting the toxins in the water, even if there's a school nearby and people want to protect the school children. This is... You don't have the right to raise food in a way that poisons other people. And I'm not going to soft pedal it anymore. Exactly. This is what we're talking about. There are ways to raise food. If it only affected you, that would be your business. But when you're putting toxins in the water, when you're putting toxins in the air, poisons in the air that drift and kill other people's crops, no, that you don't have a right to do that. And this is one of the fights. So, And I suspect having, from my experience with industry ag groups and legislation, that the fact that we're seeing this bill in Texas probably means it's being introduced in multiple states. The industry ag groups typically write these bills and then sort of feed them, so to speak, Mm -hmm. in in multiple states. So I'd encourage folks to look for a state-level organization in their state that's looking at local food issues and find out if this has been introduced in their state as well and join the fight against it if it has. Well, Judith, our time is up, but I want to thank you so much for being my guest. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sooth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank Judith McGeary, Executive Director of the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, for being my guest. She's an attorney, an activist, and a sustainable farmer, a magical combination who can bring all of these issues to the fore. And we want to recommend your website, farmandranchfreedom.org, to keep up on these issues and how we can be citizen and farmer coalitions helping people eat the good food and protect our planet. So, Judith, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on.